Well, I do just want to take a very brief moment and acknowledge the fact that Scott and Rose Wassell had their baby girl, Evelyn, here within the past week. And so I, I don't think they're here this morning, but as you get a chance to see them or reach out to them, please make sure that you congratulate them uh, for that new little life that's been added to their family and now here into our church family. Uh, it's been such a joy to see Scott and Rose. I, I think they joined the church here formally just two weeks ago, and now they've already added to it by one. So we're, we're grateful for that new life and congratulate them in that very exciting news. You know, I, I, I do have a really hard time wrapping my brain around the fact that today is the last day in 2023. I don't know how this year is over, but it is. There's only a few short hours left with which to redeem this year, and I will tell you that there is no place that I would rather be uh, on this final day of the year than here with all of you. Uh, with this church family. It is such a joy, at least in my own heart, to reflect back over the goodness of God to us in the past year. And, and there are so many different manifestations of that goodness and blessing to us, are there not? I know for some of you, maybe this past year you faced some particularly difficult things. Some of you faced some particularly joyous triumphs and moments of of great gratitude. But regardless of what this year held for you, I think all of us together can affirm the reality that God is good, and indeed He has been good. We've seen that, have we not? As we've seen some of you coming to know the person of Jesus Christ and establishing a relationship with Him over this past year. We've seen a number of you follow the Lord in obedience and in baptism and give public testimony and affirmation of His work within your life. We've seen a number of you joining the church here, and, and all of those things are manifestations of God's goodness and His blessing to us. But you know, for me, as your pastor, as I look over the last year, what brings me, I think, the greatest joy is to see the way specifically that I, I, can, I can perceive the hunger that you have for the Word of God, to know the truth so that you might love Jesus Christ more. And that brings great warmth to my heart. And I, I pray that it's an encouragement to you as well as you look around and see other brothers and sisters, men, women, and children who have that same overarching desire for their lives even as we head here into a brand new year. Because ready or not, it's upon us. So this morning, we have some things to talk about as we go to wrap up the year. And I think it's fitting that since today's the final Sunday of the year, it would also be our final Sunday in John chapter 16. So if you're not already there, turn there with me in your Bibles, please, because this is going to be the conclusion to what we've been calling the upper room discourse, this conversation, if you will, that Jesus has been having with his disciples here. It's a conversation that we've dug deeply into. I think we started into this conversation in John 13 back on August the 13th. And so it's been a full four months that we have just been mining out the amazing truth that Jesus has shared with his followers here in John 13 all the way through 16. But today, that conversation is going to come to its conclusion as Jesus wraps it up here at the end of chapter 16. And I will confess to you 
that as I've been looking at this text over the past number of months, it's been with a bit of a nervous eye the whole time because I wasn't exactly sure what this text actually meant. But when you begin to study it, you quickly discover that it is not a hard text to unlock at all, especially if you have the key. And like usual, the key to unlocking any text can almost always be found by examining the context. And so here's what we learn as we examine the context of the end of John chapter 16. This is what you need to know in order to rightly understand and apply this text to your life. See, these, if you arrange all the materials in the Gospels chronologically, these words contained in these last nine verses of chapter 16 represent the final formal teaching of Jesus to his followers. These are, in many ways, his last words of instruction to those men who were still following him. Sure, there would be individual comments that Jesus would make, and perhaps there was a measure of instruction in those comments where he says, men, stay awake in the garden, for instance. Or he says, Peter, put your sword back in its spot. Or to John, behold now your mother. But, but there's no more extended conversation beyond this one that takes place between them. See, John chapter 17 is all about Jesus' conversation with his father. But this is the final conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. See, and in many ways, these are his last final official words to these men before the cross. And that means that in these verses, Jesus is here and now compressing, if you will, his central priorities down into something of a closing statement, a closing argument for you golfers. This is kind of a swing thought, if you will, for us as followers of Jesus Christ to know what his central priorities for us in our lives ought to be. The, the pressure of this last moment crystallizing now into some very clear priorities. It's as though he's saying here in these nine verses, above all, my men, as I go, remember these things. In many ways, this text, it, it does give to us the pressing priorities of Jesus for us. They are, I guess you could say, his resolutions for us, for our life. So today, as we're all here contemplating what a new year is going to bring and what our goals ought to be for that new year, I think it is actually most appropriate and fitting that we would hear from Jesus what his goals are for us so that we might align our priorities and resolutions and goals with the priorities of his heart for us. And so that is the task that is before us here this morning. Now, as we get going, it's very important to know that there is a necessary and logical order to these priorities. You need to take them in the order that Jesus has given to us. You need to take them in the order that Jesus has given to them. I'm all confused. Take them in the right order. Jesus' order. That's what I'm trying to say. All right? So let's just begin now in this text where Jesus begins. The first thing that we'll see here in this text, the first priority of his heart that he gives to us is that we 
would prioritize the knowledge of the truth, that we would know the truth. And here's what Jesus says in verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you, though, in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. Let's just dig into that and see what that means for us in our context post-cross. You know, since this conversation began, way back in John chapter 13, you'll remember, if you've been with us for those last four months, that Jesus has used a number of graphic figures of speech. Let me review a couple of those figures of speech for you by way of review. Remember the time in chapter 13 where he washed the feet of the disciples and Peter says, boy, if you're going to wash me, wash all of me, my head down to my toes. And Jesus says, no, Peter, you're clean already because of my work in you. Remember that image? Well, that was just the first of many. Remember the time where he introduced to these men and came back and talked about him five different times, the new helper that was going to be sent to come to these men. Or how about the illustration we covered in chapter 15 of the vine as Jesus and the branches, us as his followers. All those things are, are figures of speeches. And, and all of them had been hard enough for the disciples to understand. But the reality is here, when Jesus is referring to figures of speech, he's not actually talking about those images or those literary devices that he has been deploying here in this conversation. No, the word that is used here for figures of speech means to speak in a way that is shrouded, to speak in a way that is hidden. See, beyond the challenging imagery that Jesus has provided with these men, the substance of the statements themselves. That's what Jesus is actually referring to here. Because the substance of these statements for these men in a pre-cross, pre-spirit indwelling day were absolutely impossible for them to understand. Consider, for instance, and try to put yourself in their shoes where you don't have the Spirit indwelling you and you're before the point of the cross. What would it mean for Jesus to be in the Father the Father to be in him, and both of them to be in us. There's no way that those men could have understood what that meant. Or what could it possibly have meant for Jesus to go away and for that to be to their advantage? Jesus, how can it possibly be to our advantage for you to leave? Or, and this is the one that elicited a response from the disciples of them throwing up their hands in despair and saying, enough already, where Jesus told them, look, a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me. And they say to that, we simply don't know what you are talking about. See, all of these statements could not be understood by these men in a pre-cross, pre-spirit indwelt day. Indeed, as Jesus has already told them, you'll remember back in chapter 16, verse 12, I have many things to say to you men, but you are not ready to bear them now. But he has also been explaining to them through this conversation that the day would come very soon when the spirit of truth would come and would teach them 
all things concerning Christ, chapter 14, verse 26. And he would then go on to bear witness to the disciples concerning the reality and truth of Christ, chapter 15, verse 26. He would then go on to guide them into all the truth about Christ, chapter 16, verse 13. And in that day, then, Jesus said in chapter 16, verse 22, you will be able to see me and I will see you. See, here's what Jesus is promising right here in this text. When that day came, when the Spirit came to indwell them, no more would His truth be shrouded or mysterious or unintelligible. No, when that hour came, Jesus promised, look at what He says, I will tell you plainly about the Father. Now, that is a promise that should make Everybody in that room and in this one sit up just a little bit straighter. And the reason for that is because Jesus came, we're told in John 1.18, to explain to us the nature of the Father. And He has spent three years doing just that. And we've now spent almost that amount of time looking through the record of how He did just that here in the Gospel of John. But now, He says, everything you've seen so far, has been shrouded. But the hour is coming when I'm really going to make it utterly clear. Big gulp for those men in that room. What could be clearer than what Jesus had already shown them? Well, there is something else. And that's the priority that Jesus is pointing here to us to embrace this morning. It is the priority of embracing His Word that place where we find the full truth about the nature of the Father. My friends, I, I'm here to tell you this morning that the promise of this text, it has already been fully fulfilled. The truth about the Father, it has been stated as plainly as could be to us. In the Scriptures, Jesus Christ has given to us all the straight talk that we could possibly need about God and who He is. See, the Spirit did arrive on the day of Pentecost, and on that day, He began sovereignly inspiring these men to record all the truth of the Scriptures, all the truth about Christ that God desired for us to have. And the result of that inspired work is the copy of the Scriptures that you hold in your hands and on your laps here this morning. See, in God's holy inspired Word, we do have all the truth about God plainly stated to us, just as Jesus Christ said, indeed it would be. And the result of that is that now we can truly know fully the truth of God, so much so that the Apostle Peter could go on to say in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we now have everything that we need for life and for godliness. See, now in the Scriptures, nothing is held back. No spiritual power has been held in reserve from us. There is nothing that Jesus would want to say, but that we are not ready to hear. No, we have the Scripture now, and we have the Spirit within us, illuminating us so that we can understand the Word and the mind of God. See, the fullness of all of God's truth, it has now been granted to us, revealed to us, along with the spiritual eyes to see and comprehend its meaning. This promise right here in verse 25, it is fulfilled every single time you open your Bible and learn anything about God. And friend, that right there is where your journey of growth 
begins. The journey of growth in the Christian life, it begins with a thorough knowledge of that which is true. See, our fixation and focus around here on theology and the knowledge of God and the truth of the Scripture, it isn't for the sake of knowledge, for knowledge's sake alone. It's not so that we might become puffed up premier theologians with answers to every single possible questions. No, it's so that we might now engage in reverential relationship to the holy God who has revealed himself to us. And that's the reason why 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, for instance, all scripture, it has been breathed out by God and is profitable now for our teaching, for our reproof, for our correction, for our training in righteousness that we might now be complete, <laughs> equipped for every good work. And so if you would walk in the priorities of Christ that he is going to go on to explain to us here in this text, then you must first have embraced the knowledge of what he has already made known to you about God. And that means that you will love, read, obey, and know His Word. Because I'm here to tell you that there is no progress possible in your Christian walk apart from your knowledge of the truth of God. And this is the place where that knowledge is given to us. See, it's the knowledge of the truth about God as Christ now openly informs you about Him that generates your ability to pursue all of the other priorities in this text. So what does that mean on a New Year's Eve? It means that tomorrow on New Year's Day, friends, you've got a fresh start, clean snow out in front of you. So go make some tracks in it. Find yourself a, a good Bible reading plan that you can come up with. Get a, get a strategy for how you intend to consume the Word of God. Set aside time in the day, if you haven't already, when, when you can make this happen. Because it is the source of where your spiritual life and energy is meant to come from. And then, once you've made that priority and put it in place, dig in with pick and spade and hermeneutical shovel. Because the Word of God, it is the sword of the Spirit that He uses and wields in your life to conform you to the perfect image of Christ. And that's the reason why we start here. It's the reason why Jesus started here in the communication of his priorities. Because with the knowledge of the truth that has been revealed in the scriptures, everything else that Jesus would have us to pursue can now grow out of the soil of knowing the truth about God. And this is not some future promise. It's a promise that has been fulfilled for you and I today right here in this word. So let's make that a priority in our life, just as Jesus says he would have us to do. But that's just the first priority. There's a lot of other ones for us to get to here this morning. And here is what the knowledge of the truth is going to produce in your life. See, when you see the fullness of who God is, when you see the great reality of his nature, you begin to understand the corruption of your own nature. And it's that contrast between him and you that now enables you to begin to understand the enormous magnitude of God's love for you. 
And that is going to become very important here now. And it really is the second priority that Jesus gives us here, that we would pursue a true, passionate, fervent love for both the Father and the Son and for one another. Now, to really understand this priority in these next verses, there are really two issues here that that we need to talk about. The, The first is answering the question, what did Jesus mean when he said what he said in these verses? The second question is, Why did he say these things? And once we've understood the answer to both those questions, then we'll be better positioned to apply the truth of it to our lives. So let's dig in and hang in there with me. First, what does Jesus mean in verses 26 and 27 when he says, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. What is he saying there? Well, here's the bottom line. Jesus wants you to know that you now have a relationship directly to the Father. See, Jesus has instructed us three times in the past three chapters to pray in his name. But that should not be misunderstood to mean that Jesus is just going to do enough to get you into heaven, but he intends to keep you out of God's throne room once you get there. As though he's going to be the one ferrying your messages in and out to the Father, but keeping you outside at an appropriate arm's length, as though you were a child needing to, to slip a piece of paper under your parents' door. Not hardly. See, as he says in verse 26, yes, his work does pave the way. But now having paved the way for you, that's why we pray in his name. Now he beckons us to enter into the presence of God the Father and speak directly to him ourselves. Why? Why does the Father want us to come into his presence? And this is really important now. Verse 27, it's because, as he says, because the Father himself loves you. See, and he, he wants you to be there in his presence. What does that mean? It means that you, now having joined the family of God, have every right to go up and speak to the Father directly yourself. The Son is the one who makes that possible, but you can go and talk to him. See, the Father loves you as much as the, as the Son does, for they, the two, are one. And to have a relationship with the Son is to have the same equivalent relationship with the Father. That's the impact of what he is saying here. Which, now that we understand this, leads us to our second question. Why is Jesus emphasizing that truth here in this text in these final words? And this is where it becomes very important. See, Jesus is emphasizing the love of the Father for you Because, friends, the love of the Father is the source of all of your love. See, if you don't understand the love of God for you, you will never be able to love as he has loved. And throughout this conversation, Jesus has repeatedly admonished us to love a new commandment I give to you that you would love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love each other, he says. And, and this is the kind of love that you would love as I have loved. And, and no greater love exists than this, than a man would, get, would lay down his life for his friends. How is any of that possible? How do I get that kind of love so that I can love like I have been loved? Well, it's as you understand this simple truth right here that the Father loves you. 1 John 4.19 tells us very clearly 
that we love because he first loved us. See, it's the love of God for you and your comprehension of that love that now enables you to love one another and to love Jesus Christ, his son. And, and that's the reason why Jesus says what he says here, because he, he wants us to not just know kind of the detached reality of God's love. No, he wants to give us the kind of a love that we can actually use and deploy in our lives. That's his point here. See, knowing the love of God, that is the enabling force that allows you to show the love of God, as Christ has been commanding us to do over these past four chapters. And if, if you don't understand that simple truth of God's love for you, then you'll never know how to love as he has loved. And that's why Jesus makes loving God and knowing the love of God such a priority for us here at the end, which now leads us to an application question. How am I supposed to see God's love for me? I get what you're saying, preacher, that for me to love as Christ has commanded me to, I need to see the love that the Father has for me. But, but how specifically do I see that love on display? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's where verse 28 comes in now. See, there is one place and one place only where the love of God is put on display and clearly manifested for us with perfect clarity. And if I could summarize verse, summarize verse 28 for you in one word, it would be simply Jesus. He is the manifestation of God's love for you. See, what you've got here in verse 28 is essentially the pocket-sized, take-it-with-you guide to God's love for you, where Jesus makes four very clear statements here about who he is and what he came to do all of them being reflections of the majestic love that God has for mankind. Let's just run through these very quickly. I'll try to make them clear. Jesus says, first, I came from the Father. He's saying there that he is and he always has been with God and is God eternally begotten of God as his son. Why would such a God, Jesus Christ, come to earth and take on human flesh? Because of the love of God. That's the reason why. Jesus goes on and he says, and not only have I come from the Father, that's where I was, but I have now come into the world. That's where I am. It's a clear reference to his incarnation and resulting human life. Why would Christ empty himself to take on human flesh? Again, the answer, it's because of the love of God. He goes on to say his third statement, now I am leaving. That's a clear reference, it's present tense, to the action whereby his death on the very next day in this text was going to pay for all of our sin. Why would Jesus Christ be humiliated upon the cross the way that he was? You know the answer. It's because of the love of God. And then his fourth and final statement, he concludes the, the, the reckoning of his work with this statement, and now I am going back to the Father. A clear statement that anticipates the resurrection, ascension, and glorification. But that then leads us to ask the question, why in the world would he ever have left his throne in heaven in the first place? Because of the love of God. 
Do you see the way by which from beginning to end the work of Christ and the fullness of it is the way by which you and I, we are able to see the love magnificently, majestically put on display. It's a, it's a work that starts in heaven and ends in heaven. And as that circuitry is completed, in the middle of it, Jesus plugs the power of God's love down into the reality of your world, establishing the flow of his power, his love between God in heaven, you on earth, back to God in heaven. See, Christ, from the beginning to the end of his work, he is the perfect manifestation of God's love to you. And, and once you've seen and known that kind of love, well, now you can't help but love as he has loved. See, chapters 13 through 16, they've been shot through with commands from Christ to love. And right here at the end, Jesus gives us the key to actually doing this and says, this is another one of my priorities for you. It's that you would look to the Father, know a relationship with Him yourself directly, talk to Him, know His love for you. For it's as you see and know and embrace His love for you that you're going to find the ability to do everything that I've been commanding you to do over these past four chapters. That's why this is so important. And so... What does that mean now for, for us here in this room today? It means that if you're having a hard time loving those who are around you, but you know that you're in Christ, we could say that another way. If you're having a hard time being a Christ-like Christian, put another way, if you're having a hard time being a Christian Christian and loving those who are around you, then here's what you need to do. You need to go back and look at the love of God for you that was demonstrated in Jesus Christ. You need to go into 2024, if this describes you as a man or a woman on a mission, to see more of Christ, the one who is the love of God for you. For as you see and know the reality that God himself loves you, well, now you will love as he has loved. See, this is the reason why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, faith, hope, and love, these three priorities abide. But the greatest of these is love. Because this is where the manifestation of your knowledge about God begins. And it's why it's Jesus' second priority for you. It's so that you would know and use the love of God. But see, here's the thing. Love, it never exists in isolation. If you love God and that love is made manifest as you love those who are around you, then the love of God is going to buoy and secure your faith. See, love always in the scripture gets paired up with faith. And that's the next priority that Jesus is going to give us here in this text, that not only would we pursue a greater love for Christ, but that we would also maintain a faith in Christ. Now, at this point in the conversation, the disciples pipe back up, and every time that they open their mouth, I love it, because it provides just a little bit of comedic you know, benefit to us in the text, because every time they speak, it's just laced with irony. These men think they know so much, but they don't know the first thing about anything. Look at what they say here in verse 29. His disciples said, ah, that's the Greek. It actually is. Now you are speaking plainly. 
and you're not using figurative speech. We get it. We understand everything that you're saying here. See, here's the part about that that's funny. Jesus has just helped them to understand the, the very simple kindergarten-level truth. Picture this now. God loves you. That's the truth that now they comprehend. And they think that because they get that entry-level truth, ah, now it all's clear. We understand everything that you've been saying because we understand this one thing. Now we understand everything. See, they're so eager to get out of their swamp of confusion that they impulsively pat each other on the back and say, Eureka, we get it. Everything you've said makes total sense now. But then in verse 31 and 30, when they go to articulate what it is that they think they know and understand, they prove that they don't actually know anything yet. Because without the Spirit in their life, there's no possible way for them to. And here in verse 30, yeah, they do go on to make a few statements that are technically true. They state facts that they think they know, but their understanding falls so far short of what Jesus has actually been describing that it's really quite laughable. They say here, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. You're God. This is why we believe that you came from God. All that is very true but it doesn't begin to scratch the surface of what Jesus has actually been explaining to them. Let me illustrate it for you this way. It would be as if all of us went downtown, for instance, sometime this next week to listen to a lecture on, let's say, advanced calculus from a Nobel-winning mathematician. And at the conclusion of that instruction, we all, in a, in a stupor of confusion, but desperately not wanting to look like the ignoramuses that we actually were, turned to each other and said, Aha! I get what he was saying. Two plus two equals four. We're tracking with you, teacher. I mean, technically, our statement is correct. Two plus two does equal four. But that doesn't mean that I understand the first thing about calculus. Well, that's essentially what's happening here in this text. They say, we know, and they don't. See, and Jesus, he gently fingers that reality in verse 31 as he points to the essential need for faith on the part of these men. He says, now, now do you believe? It's a statement that is both a question and a rebuke. He says, you men think you have faith now. Well, that's good because you're going to need it. Look at what he says in verse 32. The hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. It's right now when you will be scattered each to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the Father. He is with me. Here's what Jesus is saying there. Within the next hour, it was going to look for all the world like Jesus' mission had failed. The sheep would be scattered, the Messiah, the shepherd would be killed. And in that day when all seemed lost, that was the moment when their faith was really going to be tested. And so in advance, Jesus gives them a statement to hold on to. He says here, hang on to your faith, my men, and never forget that I am not alone. The Father, he is with me. And that, that right there, that challenge to believe in the face of difficulty, to believe in the identity of Christ as being the one who is equal to and one with the Father, the challenge to believe in the work of Christ 
That right there is the priority, that, that we would believe, that we would cling to the faith that has been granted to us by God in the face of the storm that's coming. Jesus says, hold on to your faith. That's priority number three, because if you do, you will not be disappointed. See, everybody was going to go on to abandon Jesus, but that did not mean that all was lost. No, the success of God's plan was not going to depend upon the fortitude of these men. It was going to depend upon the fortitude of God's Son. And in that day when all seemed lost, they needed to remember that nothing had been lost. Instead, no, everything had been gained. For Christ and His Father... Things are still on track. See, it was the Father's good will to crush him. This was all according to what God had already ordained. And the, the Son and the Father, they being one, Jesus hasn't been abandoned or left alone. See, it's, it's that truth that defines true faith. Where we look at Christ, the glory of who he is, and we believe. We look at Christ, the grandeur of what he's done, and we believe. See, it's that work and person of Jesus, His oneness with the Father, His sacrifice on our behalf, that is the thing that is going to sustain us in the midst of those dark days. And friends, that is every bit as true for us today as it was for those men in that day. See, when the going, when it gets tough, when your ability to see God in the fog of life's war gets tricky, people... Cling to your faith. Run back to Christ. Know that He, He has not failed. He has won. And so when, when life, when it threatens to just undo you, remember that God, He has not abandoned you. He, he loves you, as Jesus has just said. And he, he is not distant. No, you can talk to Him directly. God's plan, it is perfect. And the day is coming when you too are going to be made perfect. So in the meantime, what is Jesus' priority for you? It's that you would hang on to this kind of rugged, durable faith that now, as we're going to see, translates into hope. And that's the final priority from Christ here in these verses, not just that you would love and believe, but that you would have something to put into practice here today, that you would know the reality of hope, that you would be able to cultivate a hope in Christ, regardless of the circumstances that you might find yourself in. See, here's what we found so far. Knowledge of the truth, it is going to inevitably reveal and produce love within you. And love always generates faith. But faith always produces one last thing, proven hope. See, 1 Thessalonians 5.8 demonstrates that truth to us. It affirms that love and faith are not only par paired together, but they also go along with something else. Listen, since we belong to the day now, since we've been saved, he says, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. See, this is why it's so important. Jesus did not leave a single follower here on earth as a forlorn, abandoned orphan. No, we were left here as empowered citizens of heaven, 
sons and daughters of the king. And Jesus affirms that here for us in verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world, you're going to have tribulation. It's a word that means affliction, trial, trouble, difficulty. Two things rubbing against each other really hard. That's going to be your experience here. But in the midst of that, here's your hope. Take heart, he commands, for I, Jesus says, have overcome the world. Just an incredible statement of hope that I want to dig into here with you in the moments that we have left because this is precisely where our focus should be as we conclude this year. See, if you, if you stop and think about this final statement that Jesus has just made here in this verse, it is just stunningly audacious. Verse 33 is maybe one of the greatest statements that has ever been made. Let me help you see the picture as it's unfolding here in the text. See, as we've already covered, Jesus is almost certainly having this conversation in the temple courtyard as he is walking with his men from the upper room, which is in the upper part of Jerusalem, out towards the Garden of Gethsemane. We know from chapter 14, verse 31, that he's already left the room. Chapter 18, verse 1, is going to tell us that he had to cross over the Kidron Valley to get there. The only way to do that is through the temple courtyard. See, that's a pretty clear geographical marker that at this point he is in the temple, a fact that is supported by his usage of divine imagery, which was the primary de decorative motif there in the temple. Now, here is why that becomes significant now in the text. All day long, sacrifices have been being made in preparation for the Passover feast, and so there is a literal, physical river of blood that is flowing out of the temple. And it's amidst all the bleeding of sheep and flowing of blood. In the middle of it all stands now the Lamb of God Himself who came to take away the sin of the world. And He takes one last look at that scene. And now He looks His men in the eye knowing good and well that, that these sacrifices will never be necessary again. And He wraps up this talk, looks Him in the eye, prepares to head out the door for His own sacrifice with this concluding statement to His men. I have conquered already. Now, that is some incredibly thrilling stuff. If that doesn't send a tingle up your spine, you might need to go check your pulse. See, the victory was already won here. It is so assured that Jesus can talk about it in the past tense as though it's already happened. There was no doubt in his mind that the humiliation of crucifixion would be met with the triumph of resurrection or that the end of his incarnation would result in the, the victory of his glorification. And so he's got one final command for his followers, one that, that applies to us today as well. He says, I have overcome this world. So you people, you church, now take heart. And it's a strong word there. It means to have courage. And I personally cannot think of a better message to end 2023 with or to start 2024 with than this from Christ, church, take heart. Not because of anything that has to do with who you are, but only and always because of everything that he is within you already. 
See, he has already done the work for you to overcome this world now in which you live. And sure, you may have affliction, but we must now take heart, testifying to the truth that lives now deeply within us. We must take heart now and know the love of God so that we may manifest it to one another. We must take heart and have faith in the face of difficulty. Jesus tells us here, your trouble in this world that you're bound to have, that's just part of living in a sin-cursed world. But he has not left us ill-equipped for these moments of searing trial. No, what has he done? He, friend, he has given you now his peace and the confidence that he has already won the victory for you. And so it is so very important this morning that we remember that, that if we be in Christ, we have a peace now that surpasses understanding, a gift from Christ to us. And now we are being guarded by the love of God in Christ Jesus, knowing that, that in this love we now have an eternal living hope, Peter says, that has been reserved for us in heaven. And it's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, because we, through the peace of Christ and the power of God, are being guarded in it today. And the result is that now nothing in this world, Paul says, can touch you or damage your standing before God. Not death, not life, not angels or rulers, things present or to come, not height nor depth nor anything in all creation can ever separate you from the love of God that belongs to you in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's for that reason now that the Apostle Paul can go on in Romans chapter 8 verse 37 to say that we, being in Christ, are now more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because he has overcome the world already, so too our victory has been won. And now we can be at peace, come what may. Folks, that is the hope that ought to be ours as we go into this next year. So, so what does this all mean for us as we look ahead to 2024? You know, we already know, don't we, that this year it's probably going to be a little bumpy ride on occasion from time to time. We don't have to look far to see the sources of that bumpiness, do we? I mean, we live in a world that has just absolutely rejected the truth of God. And the result of that is that our world is in a state of utter chaos. Just go read the news. Evidence that God, the sovereign one, is in heaven on his throne laughing at the derision of mankind because the world has just spun completely out of control. You don't have to look far to see the kind of turbulence that's coming our way this, this next political election season, do you? You don't have to look far to see the, the turbulence, the, the affliction that exists within the economy of our nation, do you? I mean, those are all things on the macroeconomic level, but, but what about at your level, in your life? You know tribulation and trouble and affliction too, don't you? We don't have to just leave it in generalities. No, we can talk about specifics. Let's talk about relational specifics for a moment, right? The difficulty of living life in the same lane with another fallen human creature in the relationship that is known as, as marriage, right? That relational tension that can exist there, that, that can be a difficult challenge to go through at times. Or, or how about the difficulty of parenthood, right? Where you've got the task of raising up these little urchins into something resembling an adult human being that loves and honors the Lord? Or what about the difficulty of working by the sweat of your brow as the fruit of the curse, knowing the difficulty of relationships there with coworkers, or the reality of 
economic want or the reality of sickness, death, tragedy. We could go on and on and on. All of these things standing as reminders to us of the affliction that is ours in a fallen, sin-cursed world. And yet, as we look ahead to 2024 and anticipate all these potentialities that could do so much to frighten us, what has Jesus' message been to us here in this text? Has it not been so very clear? Know the truth. Embrace the love of God. Believe in your Jesus and take heart now, knowing that Jesus He has already overcome the entirety of this world. He's won already. You know, as we come down to the end of this conversation in chapter 16 between Jesus and his disciples, I I think it's it's important for us to pair his introduction from chapter 14 with his conclusion here in chapter 16. Those of you who have been with us for a number of months will remember the statement of chapter 14, verse 1, where Jesus said very clearly, do not let your hearts be troubled. That was his introduction. How is that possible given what we see around us? Well, he explains it to us right here in his conclusion. Because I have overcome this world already. Friends, as we wait for the return of King Christ Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the text we read at the beginning of our service, may we, as we wait this year, be his followers who are passionate and ready to pursue his priorities for us. May we be people who seek to know his truth. May we be people who gaze with fixed eyes upon his love for us, and may we show it to each other. May we be people who maintain our faith through difficult days, and may we be people who actively seek to cultivate a true and living hope in Jesus. See, as Peter has admonished us, in 1 Peter 1:13, here's a final fitting word. Therefore now, prepare your mind for action. Be sober-minded and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's close today in a word of prayer. Our Father God, we do thank you for the person of Jesus. We thank you for the work that he has done on our behalf. We thank you for the work whereby he has already conquered sin and death for us. And now we just wait to see the full fruition of it. And may that grand reality bring hope to our hearts in the midst of difficulty. May our faith be strengthened. May our love be deepened. May our knowledge of who you are be enhanced. Because we now are those who are truly in Christ. May we walk with him. May we know him. And may the priorities of our life be the priorities of his heart. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's do stand together and conclude this morning with a brief benediction from 1 Thessalonians 1-2 that talks about the priority of faith, hope, and love. Paul says there, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Go in grace today. Happy New Year.